Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we pray that the good news of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed from this pulpit this morning. The good news of justification with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, this is the foundation of our salvation, and may we never forget it, and may this pulpit always be faithful to be the holy desk from that which is from where it is preached, Sunday to Sunday until you return. Lord, come now and, and bless me as the preacher of your word. Give me utterance, the ability to, to, to tell forth the gospel, and, and let it be in a work of the Holy Spirit so that our confidence wouldn't rest in human wisdom but in the Spirit of God. And grant all of us the ability to receive and hear your word this morning and apply it in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, um, you may or may not know that today is Reformation Sunday. It's the Sunday where we remember and give thanks for the Protestant Reformation. And right at the beginning of this, this sermon, we need to understand that the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s was not about creating a break, a complete break with the past. It was a renewal movement within the church that had existed at that time. The truth of the Gospels was still there. The good news was encrusted with barnacles, you might say, but the, but the ship of, of the church was still floating to Zion. And we needed the Reformation to clean that old ship of faith up so that we could have an undiluted gospel, an undiluted good news. And so the Protestant Reformation was not about introducing a revolutionary idea that shook the foundations of Christianity. In other words, the Reformation was not a movement that sought to destroy an old system and replace it with a new and improved religion. So the rally cry of the Protestant Reformation was not forward. It was not forward. Rather, it was about return, returning to the old, old story. It was about coming back to and reappropriating the source of Christian faith and practice. So the rally cry of the Reformation is summed up in that phrase that many of us have heard, ad fontes, to, back to the sources, to the sources. That's what we were all about in the 1500s. And as Michael Horton says, the reformers wanted to recover something that had been lost and not to follow the winds of a rising modernity. So the Reformation was, listen, it was a back to the Bible movement. The Reformation was a back to the Bible movement. It was a back to the early church fathers movement. And and thus the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was not a revolutionary concept. Rather, it is the faith that was proclaimed and taught by the apostles. And it was the late medieval view that Christians could somehow earn merit, earn merit through certain good works that was the innovation. That was the departure. It was a radical departure from the founding of our faith. And so since this is a sermon about that wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, by justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this is going to be a doctrinal sermon. It's going to be a teaching sermon. It's not it might not have all the feels, okay? We're going to have the thinks, right? So that and it may have some feels as well, but we're going to put on our thinking caps and follow this a little bit this morning. 
So what we're going to do today is to take a dive into this passage from Romans chapter 3, which was so central to the articulation of the Great Reformation emphasis on justification by grace alone. And to begin with, though, we need to see why this, re uh, this Reformation emphasis is still relevant today. It maybe even is especially relevant to us today. Now, just glancing at this passage from Romans chapter 3, you're struck with some words and phrases that we don't hardly ever hear in any other area of our lives. Here they go. Righteousness or righteous. Justification or justify. Redemption. And here's the big one. Propitiation. I bet you didn't use that word all week. <laughs> Many believe that those terms, those theological categories, do not mesh with the concerns of a modern secular society, but I beg to differ. See, our modern secular world is, listen, obsessed. Our modern secular world is obsessed with categories of sin and morality. We are obsessed with personal and communal guilt. We are as concerned with our sin and unrighteousness as that Augustinian monk Martin Luther was in 1517. Let me quickly tell you what I mean and why this is important as we deal with this text this morning. So here we go. Here's why this is relevant. The rise of critical theory and theories of intersectionality have as their byproduct. Now you're saying, I don't even know, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with anything? Oh, oh let me tell you what. Your children know what I'm talking about. The company you work for knows what I'm talking about. Government agencies know what I'm talking about. The world we live in right now is beginning to be shaped by this new secular morality. So these theories of intersectionality and critical theory have as a byproduct the effect of ranking people, of plotting people onto matrices of victims and oppressors. And in these theories, once you have been ranked as a member of an oppressor group, you can never be free from your guilt. You may become an ally of a victim group, but you are never released from the category of being an oppressor. You can, listen, this is so important. You can never change your identity status. You are in eternal bondage to where you are situated on the XY axis of victimhood and oppression. You stand eternally condemned, damned for all time, with absolutely no hope of changing your status in this new morality. And no one is safe from falling into the abyss of becoming an irredeemable victimizer. Just in the last few days, progressive icon Margaret Atwood, who was the author of the dystopian novel, very, very well known, the, the Handmaid's Tale experienced this. She retweeted a comment in which she asked, why can't we just say women? Why do we have to say pregnant people? And by retweeting that, she was excoriated for saying these things, and she lost her status of progressive sainthood to become condemned along with J.K. Rowling and Martina Navratilova as, listen, a trans-exclusive radical feminist, a TERF. It's a, it's a term of derision. Now, my point in going through all of this 
is to demonstrate that modern secular culture still has categories of guilt and sin and condemnation. In fact, I would say that our culture is dominated by a new form of intense secular Puritanism. Intense secular Puritanism. So we still feel guilt. We still know the shame of transgression. But the destructive, soul-crushing, demoralizing quality of this secular Puritanism is that there is no category of redemption. There is never an opportunity to change our status from guilty to justified. Secular morality is a morality that is stripped of hope. And I think we might feel that. It's crushing. And that's why, and the reason I'm going through all this, that's why the message of Romans chapter 3 is so important even today, as important as it was when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Only the good news about Jesus Christ has the power to free us from perpetual slavery to sin and guilt. That's why we still need the Reformation. We still need it. And in the Christian faith, the bad news about our condition is much worse, and the good news is much better than what is on offer in our new secular morality. The, ba the bad news is worse, but the good news is much better. You see, in Christianity, in the Christian faith, our transgression is not against an ever-changing, human-manufactured social construct of good and evil, but against the infinitely holy, unchanging God of the universe. And when we do commit acts of oppression and violence, listen, when we do commit acts of oppression and violence, it is much worse in the Christian worldview than in the secular morality because we don't just harm another person or another group. We dishonor, we sin against the very image and likeness of God that every person bears. Each of us is made in the image and likeness of God. We bear the imago dei. So acts of oppression and violence are not, are not lessened in the Christian faith uh, over against the secular morality. They're more intense and more damaging because we're actually committing a form of blasphemy because we're dishonoring God whose image is on that man or woman or group of people. And moreover, in secular morality... Some have sinned, and some have sinned more than others because of where they land on the victim-oppressor graph. But right here in Romans, you're wondering when we're going to talk about the Bible. Okay, it starts now and continues to the end of the sermon. Right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned. He says, there is, listen, no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thus, our guilt is not measured by comparing ourselves with other peoples or groups to determine whether we are victims or oppressors. Rather, we are measured by the standard of an infinitely holy, infinitely glorious God. And in light of falling, infinitely short of the glory of God, Human gradations of who is more oppressive 
are obliterated in the furnace of God's holiness. Grades of sin, of oppression, are obliterated in the furnace of the holiness of God because of his infinite glory and infinite holiness. We're not just comparatively sinful. We've fallen infinitely short. All have sinned. All stand equally condemned before God. Thus, Douglas Moo writes, as Paul has argued, there is no basic difference or distinction between people. All are under sin's power and all fall short of the glory of God. And thus, if I'm going to use descriptions from the new morality, let me give, give, me, give you a comparison. Give, let me give you something to think about here. Using descriptions, not in a negative way, just, just honoring the descriptions that are afoot in the new morality, employing those terms, that this means this. A white, cisgendered, heterosexual male and a genderqueer person of color stand equally condemned before God. On our own, we are all under the wrath of God. Every one of us without distinction. No one is more holy or less holy. We're all infinitely falling short of the glory of God. And here is the strangely wonderful twist. I hope you're following this. There is a point of convergence here. Just as in the new secular morality, the gospel declares, please listen, this is important, you and I are totally incapable of changing our condition. You and I are totally, personally incapable of changing our identity and our status. No matter how hard we try, we cannot change our status of being condemned. We cannot save ourselves through our own good works. Even if we were to measure by the standards that we... If we don't, we don't even have to go to the Torah. Even if we just use the standards by which we judge everybody around us, we don't measure up to that. All of us have the same problem. We cannot save ourselves by our own good works. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, following the Torah, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So let me tell you why that is good news and how it does differ from secular morality. Every other religion, every other spirituality in the world is about what we do to change our status. Every is about what we attempt to do to change our status. And every other spirituality, even atheistic spiritualities, and yes, there are atheistic spiritualities, there is some kind of project of self-improvement in order to achieve salvation or enlightenment, or whatever. There is always some form of self-salvation. But the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, flips the script. We do not and cannot act to improve our state. God alone initiates. God alone initiates and makes possible our salvation. Righteousness, listen, is not of us. It is of God. Righteousness is not of us, it is of God. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here is what God has done for us. Listen to this, these verses. Again, I told you, we're in the Bible now from here on out. Romans 3.24 and 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, there is, there is, a, there is a lot in those two verses. In fact, I would say that's probably the entire good news wrapped up in two verses, and we need to break it down a little bit. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it's more than just being forgiven. To be justified is more than just being forgiven. Marcus Lone said, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go, you have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict which means acceptance, justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. In justification, God changes our identity. You can have a new identity. You can have a new status from condemned rebel to beloved child. In justification, God bestows on us the status of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. As God says of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now that's what God says about each of you and I who have been justified by faith in Christ. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Now we, we hear that first part, okay, you are my beloved child. Okay, I'm God's beloved child. But that's not all God says. Please hear me if you've, been, if you've experienced this gift. He says, not just you're my beloved child, God says of you this minute, because it's not based on your works or how good you were or how bad you were, but based on Christ's righteousness, right this minute, God says to you, now, today, sitting there in that pew, standing in this pulpit, with you, I am well pleased. And most of us don't believe that. So here's what I want you to do with me right now. Repeat after me. God is well pleased with me. God is well pleased with me. That is good news. Brothers and sisters, this is this is freedom, and we need that freedom today. The joy of being liberated and accepted by God today, because I think we go around, and certainly if, we, if we're influenced by our new secular morality, with this, this sense of always being condemned. Somehow I'm condemned, but God thinks you look like Jesus. You look just like Jesus. Jesus. Isn't that amazing? <sighs> Secular moralities will keep you in bondage to a status of guilt. Not just secular moralities, all other religious conceptions will as well. But Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we need the joy of that. Here's what happens when someone realizes they've been set free. They're, they are filled with explosive joy and gratitude, and it just spills out into the world around them so that we don't go hunched over in condemnation. We're free. We're released to bless the world around us. Right now in my house, there is a 12-year-old, or 12-year-old, 12-month-old, German Shepherd puppy, there's not, he, he's 12 weeks, thank you, Lisa, all right, all right, okay, I got the blue fact checker here, the blue check, get a blue check here, 
Thank you, thank you. So a 12-week-old German Shepherd puppy in a kennel, in a crate in our bedroom. He is in that crate, and when we come home and open that crate up, he is going to come bounding out of there with intense joy and gratitude. It's going to be the best thing that happens to him today when he sees me and Lisa come and open that crate. And he's just going to rejoice. You know, like, like it says in the Old Testament, we're going to go forth like calf, calves skipping and leaping from the stall. That's what it means to be free, the joy that comes with that. And this act of justification is completely a gift of God's grace, God's unmerited love and favor. So it can never be called into question as not being sufficient or not being good enough because we didn't do it. God did it. It is sufficient. In fact, it's more than that. God, not us, is the one who has done it. Paul says that we're redeemed by Jesus Christ. That means Jesus has ransomed us. He has purchased us out of slavery. And the means by which Jesus has ransomed us is by the propitiation of his blood. Lincoln Duncan writes, propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thus, God vindicates, this is, this is, God vindicates his justice, listen, by not overlooking our sins. God's holiness demands that our sins be punished, but God's love desires to spare the sinner. And so he takes upon himself our punishment in Jesus Christ. That is the Christian understanding of propitiation. And in order to receive this gift of justification, all you and I can do is place our trust in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Faith is the hand outstretched to receive the gift. It contributes nothing to the gift. It is merely the means of receiving the gift. I love what the great English reformer theologian Richard Hooker says on this in his learned discourse on justification, a learned discourse on justification. Listen to these words. Although in ourselves we be altogether sinful and unrighteous, yet even the person who in themselves is impious or impious, full of iniquity, full of sin, them being found in Christ through faith and having their sin and hatred through repentance, them God beholds with a gracious eye, putting away their sin by not imputing it, taking quite away the punishment due thereunto, by pardoning it and accepting them in Christ Jesus as perfectly righteous, as if they had fulfilled all that is commanded them in the law. And shall I say more, perfectly righteous than if they had fulfilled the whole law. I must take heed what I say. But the apostle says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Such we are in the sight of God the Father as the very Son of God himself. And he closes with these words. I love this. Let it be counted folly or frenzy or fury or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort we care for no knowledge in the world but this, that P 
People have sinned. Men and women have sinned, and God has suffered. Men and women have sinned, and God has suffered. That God has made himself the sin of people, and that people are made the righteousness of God. That's what the Reformation was all about. And because all of this is gift, because our own personal piety or good works are ultimately selfishly motivated and they are imperfect and incomplete and are worthless before God, because this is all gift, that means that you and I can never congratulate ourselves for our status as redeemed, justified, beloved children of God. A person who feels all proud of themselves for being saved has not understood their salvation. We have nothing to boast about except the cross of Christ. It is good, it is, it is right, a good and joyful thing, our duty and our joy, that today we will baptize, baptize Elijah David Harris on Reformation Sunday. Baptism is the embodiment, it is the physical acting out of the good news of God's salvation of humanity through Jesus Christ. The baptism of infants, the baptism of very young children, of those who cannot answer for themselves, is a subversive gospel act because it embodies the powerlessness we have to save ourselves. Elijah, this morning, can do nothing to save himself. Not a thing. All he can do is eat mess up his diapers and sleep some and cry some. That's all he can do. And so this covenant act, this sign of God's grace is particularly appropriate to do for him this morning. Baptism is God's act on our behalf. It is a sacrament of grace, not our works. Elijah is going to receive the covenant sign that all followers of Jesus Christ share. And that sign preaches that we are justified. We are made beloved children of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because of that, Elijah will never be able to boast of anything but the glory of God alone. Sola Deo Gloria. And every one of us in this church who've come through the waters of baptism, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, received that covenant gift of salvation, redemption, justification, we will only be able to boast in God alone as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.